And this morning, we're talking about one of those events, one of those pivotal moments where Jesus accomplished something that shaped reality. So I'm going to invite Sam Marshall to come up. Sam's going to read our scripture for us. Uh, We're going to be in Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11, and then verse 17, reading about the temptation of Jesus. And while Sam makes his way up here, I'm going to tell you my three points before before he reads. Uh, The first, we're going to look at Satan's strategy. Okay, then we're going to look at the the suffering of submission. And then finally, the substitution of the son. So that's enough alliteration to last us for several weeks, okay? Uh, Satan's strategy, the suffering of submission, and then the substitute of the son. Go ahead, Sam. This is God's word. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands he will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The word of the Lord. Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful that you would choose uh, to reveal yourself to us. And pray, Lord, that as we uh, dive into it this morning, that you would be faithful to your promises, that you would tell us more about who you are and what that means uh, for our lives even this morning. And we pray these things uh, in the holy and precious name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, so, so what I said before the scripture was read was that in this moment, Jesus is accomplishing, accomplishing something that is redefining our reality. And then to have the scripture read, I don't know, does that seem to fall flat against what we, what we just read? Like the scale of what I'm talking about and the scale of what we read can seem really different. Like it sounds like Jesus forgot his lunch and Satan is trying to tempt him to like make his own lunch, right? Or like bungee jump off the temple without a bungee cord. And you're like, well, that's interesting, but does this really accomplish, accomplish anything? And to understand that, we got to do a little bit of background because Jesus' no here actually reshapes the world that we live in, the reality that we live in. So we're going to do a little bit of background here talking about Satan's strategy, setting up this really uh, what is an epic rematch in the pages of Scripture. Okay, so last week, if you remember, we were in Matthew 3, and we talked about Jesus' baptism. So Jesus is baptized by John in the Jordan River, and he comes out, and the Holy Spirit comes down on him like a dove. The Holy Spirit is empowering Jesus for ministry. And then Jesus hears these words from God the Father, you are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this launches, this announcement of Jesus' identity launches his public ministry. And then we get this first sentence 
in Matthew 4, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. This means that Jesus, his first act of public ministry was his deliberate entry into spiritual, into spiritual battle. That in this moment, Jesus was choosing in the first act of his public ministry uh, to take on the great enemy of God's people who this passage calls scripture, or calls scripture, what? That this passage calls Satan or the devil. And let's just pause there for a minute to recognize uh, how old-fashioned this can sound. Like maybe you're like, well, you know, I can get behind the idea of God. And like if I stretch, I can get there with the idea of Jesus. But Satan, like maybe you've driven down I-65 to go visit Florida and there's, you guys know what I'm talking about, there's that red devil with the pitchfork right next to the water wheel and the sign says, be careful or the devil will get you. Like that's what we think of when we think of Satan and that, that seems so outdated, so irrelevant, so disconnected from our lives. Guys, I expected you to laugh more at that because that is a crazy thing to be on the side of an interstate. Okay, here's the thing though. We all have, we all believe in Satan. Even if you don't believe in the spiritual being of Satan, you have in your life a representation of ultimate evil. Okay, who is the worst person in human history? Don't think too hard. Yes, Hitler, okay? I know you never expected to say that out loud in church. Yes, the worst person in human history, Hitler, obviously, right? And, and uh, in our post-war mindset, in our materialist world of the public space, there are plenty of scholars who will say Hitler has come to represent ultimate evil for us. That because we have said, well, we're, we don't all believe in the spiritual reality, so we don't have the devil to kind of like talk about uh, evil with, we're going to have to find a substitute, and that substitute has been Hitler. And the demons that surround him are the Nazis. There's this per- professor uh, from the University of Durham in England, so you know he's smart because he has a British accent. His name is Alec Ryrie, and what he says uh, is that our morality, our public morality, can be summed up in the statement, don't be a Nazi. That our whole kind of moral imagination has been reduced to that idea. And that's one of the reasons we value human rights so much. Why do we value human rights? Where do they come from? Don't ask about that. Just know that if you don't believe in them, you're a Nazi. You don't want to be a Nazi. We believe in human rights, right? That's kind of the way that we do our our moral reasoning out in the world. And guys, that is such a flat, such a truncated, such a small idea of what evil actually looks like. It doesn't give us the tools that we need to adequately interact with the evil that we see in the world around us. And what the scriptures do is they provide a much fuller understanding of morality, a much fuller understanding of the moral universe. And what the scriptures teach us is that we live in a universe that has both spiritual and material dimensions, that both of those things are true. And that there is a God who is spirit. And that God who is spirit is good and he's true and he's beautiful and he's powerful. And out of the abundance of his love, what he has done is he's created beings with whom he wants to share his love. And he has created beings that inhabit the spiritual world. He's created beings that inhabit the material world. And he's created beings that kind of interact or intersect with both. That would be us humans. And in the same way that here in, in our world, in the in the, in the dimensions that are easy for us to access. There are people who have submitted their lives to God and there are people who have not. The same is true in the spiritual realm. That there are beings who live under the authority of God and there are spiritual beings who live or try to live outside of the authority of God. 
and kind of the, the, the chief, the leader of those forces, of, of those spiritual beings who would live outside of the authority of God, uh, is Satan. And his name literally means, in the scriptures, uh, accuser, liar, or slanderer. And those names tell us about what he's all about. The idea of Satan being a slanderer, it, what it tells us is that he is full of envy. Because you only slander people, you only make up lies about people whom you envy. That Satan's ultimate envy is God. And because of that envy, he rebelled against God. But that envy, it stewed in him and it became this kind of bitterness that, that, that became a desire to destroy and mar everything that God loves and is good in the world. But Satan was unable to make anything of his own and so all he can do is twist what God has already created and said is good. And we see that all the way back in the book of Genesis, the very beginning of humanity with Adam and Eve, with the first image bearers of God. Adam and Eve who were created in the image of God and were called by God to be his king and his queen in, in this new world to carry God's image out and multiply it. And Satan's desire was to come in and to twist that, to destroy it, to mar it. And we could talk about that temptation of Eve and of Adam in a bunch of different ways, but ultimately what Satan was trying to do was to get Adam and Eve to assert their own autonomy over and against God's authority. That the goal in that first temptation was to get Adam and Eve to assert their own autonomy over and against God's authority. To come back, to, to, to put themselves above God, to question his teaching, to get in, to dissect his word, and to decide whether or not they were actually going to obey it. And he succeeded. Right? And ever since then, what has been true about us as people is that we are born into a world, we are born uh, into situations where what we are always doing is we are always asserting our own autonomy over and against God's authority. That that's who we are as people. That is, that is what we do apart from God. That we make ourselves the judges of who God is and, and what he says is good. We decide whether or not we're going we're to believe that, follow that. We, we desire to be God ourselves. That's what's true about us as people. And as the biblical narrative goes on, you see that God has a desire to redeem people. And so he creates this people, this nation of Israel, through whom he's going to declare his goodness to the world. And he brings them out of slavery, right, out of Egypt, through what the New Testament calls a baptism in the Red Sea. They come out of, out of that baptism. They come into the wilderness where they wander for 40 years. And they themselves are tempted. And what they do is this new representative of God's people that they also choose to assert their own autonomy over and against God's authority. And it happens in a bunch of different ways. The craziest of which is that when Moses is up on Mount Sinai getting the Ten Commandments, right? The people are like, man, Moses is taking a long time. So instead of waiting for Moses, we're going to take off all of our like gold bracelets and earrings and things we got from the Egyptians. We're going we're gonna to give them to Moses' brother, and what Moses' brother did is he made for them a statue, a golden statue of a calf. And then he said to the people, behold, your God who brought you out of Egypt, and all the people fell down and worshiped this idol. What? Right after being delivered from Egypt. That what they're doing in that moment is they were asserting their own autonomy to make their own gods and their own decisions over and against God's authority. And that makes what, he, what happens here with Jesus, it's an epic rematch. Because Jesus, he represents for us the new Adam. Right, this idea, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, it's a call back to Genesis. 
It's pointing back to Adam. Jesus is a new Adam. He's a new Israel. In the same way that Israel was baptized in the Red Sea and led into the wilderness for 40 years to be tested, so Jesus goes through this baptism and then goes into the wilderness for 40 days to be tested. He's a new Adam. He's a new Israel. There's this epic rematch here between Satan and between Jesus. And if you've been in church a while, you're like, well, Jesus is God, so of course this is going to happen, right? Of course Jesus is going to win. But guys, Jesus was fully human, is fully human, with the same nature, just like yours and mine. And so when we come to this text, if you're coming to it for the first time, or if you've got to put yourself back into the people who would have been hearing this for the first time, they're wondering, what's going to happen? Because Satan has won two out of the last two. Out of the last two. It's an epic rematch. And so Satan comes and he begins to test or to tempt Jesus, to try to get Jesus to assert his autonomy over and against God's authority. And in doing so, it's more than getting him to turn stones to bread. It's about getting Jesus to assert his will and how his mission is going to be carried out against the Father. And the way he does it, guys, it's so sneaky, right? The, the, the way he starts the first and second temptation is to say, if you are really the Son of God, Right? He goes straight for Jesus' identity. But he's not saying, if you're the son of God, as in you're probably not, so let's see what happens. He's saying, essentially, since you're the son of God, since God loves you, God couldn't want you to sit here and hunger, right? Because you're the son of God, because you're this child of God, because of all this power, God couldn't possibly be asking you to walk into this kind of suffering. Just do something about it. Come on, just help yourself out. And Jesus resists that. No, no, no. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You, you hear Jesus there. He's resisting, asserting his own autonomy, and he's submitting himself to the authority of God and God's timing in his life. The second temptation, again, if you are really the son of God, throw yourself off the temple. Prove to me, to yourself, to all the people who are watching that God is who he says he is. Prove that you are who God says you are. If your mission is all about getting people to believe in you, go ahead, prove it. Put God to the test. What he's saying is, go ahead and manipulate God to get God to do what you're going to do. God has promised he won't let you strike your foot on a stone. So if you jump, God will have to do it, right? And let's just appreciate that Satan here is using the words of Scripture against Jesus. One of the commentators I read this week said, hey, when you're being tempted to sin, if, if what you start doing is asking, well, does the Scripture really say that? And you really want to get behind and like find the real meaning of the text, you should probably stop. Jesus responds with a clear understanding of the word, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He resists Satan's temptation for Jesus to assert his own authority as against God. To us, he resists the temptation to assert his own autonomy against God's authority. He says, no, they go together. I will trust God and his authority, his timing for my mission in the world. And then it seems like Satan just finally kind of just pulls out all the stops, right? Oh, just worship me. And you're like, well, why would Jesus ever do that? 
Well, he's promising him. He's showing him all the kingdoms of the world in all of their glory. He's essentially showing Jesus what Jesus came to achieve, which is the world in its perfect state. He's offering that to Jesus. And he's saying, you can have the world in its perfect state. You can have them all worshiping you, and you can have it with no suffering. You can have everything you wanted, everything you came to accomplish, and you can have it all with absolutely no cost to yourself, with no suffering. That suddenly sounds a lot more appealing, right? What is Jesus going to say? And this is where we get this picture of the suffering that goes along with submission. Because what Jesus says is, no. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And Satan leaves him alone. That Jesus has overcome. He's won this great victory, this great shift in spiritual power. He's won this victory over Satan. And he does it by choosing to submit to the suffering that he knows his mission will involve. He says no to all of the shortcuts that will get him out of that. And he willingly steps into this suffering. And by doing so, he wins. And yes, it's this one victory, but in this one victory, he has reshaped our reality. Because we as people have had these wills that have been chained uh, to only serve ourselves. Wills that have been chained to, to always asserting our own autonomy over and against God's authority. And Jesus, as our representative, as someone who is fully human, chooses a different thing. And there are two major implications here. One is that Satan's power is bound. It talks about, Jesus talks about this a little bit later in Matthew when he talks about uh, people are saying that Jesus casts out demons by demons. He's like, well, they're all like, hey, you're out here casting out demons. Like, you probably have a demon. He's like, hey, that's not how it works, right? That a kingdom divided against itself can't, can't stand. No, if you're going to go cast out demons, you've got to do something to the prince of demons. You've got to bind that guy. You've got to bind the strong guy to have authority over these lesser creatures, Satan has been bound. His power has been limited. It's been circumscribed. Uh, so, by way of illustration, I used to live in this place called Woodbine, okay, which is in Nashville. There are places in Nashville that exist beyond East Nashville, just so you know. It's a little bit south of downtown. And the people uh, in our neighborhood in Woodbine, they just thought about their dogs in a way that was a little bit different than the way people in East Nashville think about their dogs. And this meant that their dogs were often out in their yards barking at me as I would run by. And as someone who has personally been bitten by a dog as an adult human while I was out on a run and had to get several rabies shots, it kind of spooked me, right? And there were times I would be out running in my neighborhood and I would see these dogs not behind their fences. Okay, I did not run that direction. It's terrifying. Now, but when the dog is behind the fence, okay, there's now some safety in the world. And I'll tell you, running by, my heart would still beat a little bit faster and I would think, can the, can the dog jump the fence? But they couldn't, at least not while I was there. Right? Their power had been circumscribed. It's, it had a circle drawn around it. It was limited. And that is what has happened with Satan. This great enemy and oppressor of God's people, the person who is constantly, the being who's constantly coming and trying to tempt us to get us to assert our own autonomy over and against God's authority has had his power limited. And not only has his power been limited, but if you are in Christ, you have been given the Holy Spirit. The same spirit that rested on Jesus and allowed him to resist temptation in a way that no one else in human history had been able to, that spirit now lives within you. 
that Jesus has empowered you by giving you his Holy Spirit and by defeating Satan to now live in a way that resists sin in our world. There's this author, James K.A. Smith, uh, who talks about this switch, different kinds of freedom, what we've been empowered for in Christ in his book, On the Road with St. Augustine. And he says the way that we typically think about freedom, he says in our, in our typical way of thinking, freedom is the right to be titillated, entertained, absorbed, all on one's own terms. Freedom is freedom from. This notion of freedom is the only freedom we now know. Freedom as self-determination. Freedom means hands off, I've got this. I know what I want. And I'll know I'm free when I get to decide what's good for me, when every choice is a blank check of opportunity and possibility. That's what it sounds like when we are asserting our autonomy over and against God's authority. Smith goes on to say, this freedom often slides back into its own form of enslavement. It's exhausting, isn't it? The relentless focus on ourself and on what's going to satisfy me. And in the end, that kind of freedom, that kind of autonomy becomes its own addiction. Smith goes on to say, and so the irony My freedom of choice brings me to the point where I need someone else to give me a will that is actually free. And not merely free to choose, since that's what got me here in the first place, but free to choose the good. If freedom is going to be more than mere freedom from, if it's going to be the freedom for something, then I have to trade my autonomy for a different kind of dependence. That's what's happened to the temptation! That Jesus has achieved for us a new kind of freedom. And in giving us the Holy Spirit, he's empowered his people to walk in that new freedom. A freedom not from constraint, but a freedom to walk in what is good, to choose what's good. This is verse Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And the way we kind of tend to think about that verse is, uh, you know, that if we believe enough that God's going to let us complete the very important pass in the next game. Like if the 49ers had just had a few more Christians on the team, they would have been able to, to, to make the, uh, what was that thing called? The field goal they needed to make, right? They would have been able to complete the last few passes, right? If they had just had a few more Christians, they would have been able to, to, been able to do all things through Christ who gives them strength. But yeah, I guess they just kind of missed the boat on that one. That's the way we can talk about it. Guys, Philippians 4.13 means so much more than that. What it means, in effect, is that you have been freed, you have been empowered to suffer. You have been given the freedom that you need, the ability that you need to choose the hard thing in the face of temptation. You have been given the freedom that you need, the power that you need to choose to obey God rather than assert your own autonomy. You've been given that freedom and that power. Not a freedom of fear, 2 Timothy tells us, but a freedom of power and of love and of self-control. And as we exercise that freedom in the same way that it brought suffering into Jesus' life, it will bring suffering and pain into our lives because to, de- because to defy our own desire at times is to invite suffering. It feels like death, doesn't it? To say no to something that you want in order to say yes to something that Jesus said is better is really hard and it hurts. Yes, it does. The scriptures don't deny that. They say it's true. And the call to discipleship, the call to following Jesus is a call to saying yes to that journey. 
And guys, that journey, it has reshaped reality. It's been doing it for centuries. Like, let's just acknowledge for a moment, let's talk about the Christian sexual ethic. The Christian sexual ethic, the idea that sex is to be reserved for marriage in the way that God defines it, uh, guys, that's bonkers. Right? In our world, it is so hard to believe or to practice or to think of that as a good or a true thing. And guys, you got to know, it was just as crazy when it, when it was first preached as it is now. So hard to believe. And let's just acknowledge that it's so hard to believe that all of us here have fallen short of it. Can we acknowledge that? But guys, this, this teaching about our ability to, to exercise self-control in our lives, it revolutionized the world uh, of the first and second centuries. Because in the first and second centuries, there were no limits on sex. None. And if you were a person of power, you had the right to assert that power and have sex with whoever you wanted, whenever you wanted. That was just how the world worked, and no one blinked. No one thought that that was wrong. Of course that's the way the world operated. And into this world came this Christian sexual ethic, and people were empowered to live it out, and it started to freak people out. Like the fact that there were people who instead of women being forced to get married or forced to get remarried after their husband had died or after they had been divorced could actually live as unmarried people, that scandalized, the, that scandalized all the thinkers of the day. And Christianity said, no, you're actually free to not do that because your sex does not define you. Sex does not define you. That the, the, when, we, when we talk about free will, okay, the words free and will had not been put together in Latin until Christian thinkers came into the picture. And people were trying to figure out how do we describe the fact that these people are exercising self-control in their lives? There was no category for it. So like words were put together in new ways to describe this reality that people were witnessing. And it changed reality. It made this thing that we celebrate, consent and sex, it put it on the table, on the map for the first time and it changed the world. Thank God. That what Jesus did here at the temptation in overcoming Satan, it has changed the reality that we live in. And what it means for us as believers is now you have been empowered to resist the temptation to put your autonomy over and against God's authority. That the places in your life that God is saying no or that God is saying yes, you have the freedom to walk in obedience there, even when it's really hard. And sometimes those things are very clear commands, and sometimes it's a way uh, of being and loving the people around you. There's this author, Jen Pollock Michael, who says, like Jesus, we are free to deprive ourselves so another might flourish. We're now free to do that. We have the ability to do that now in a way that we didn't have it before. Okay, can I share with you just one small example from my own life of where I've seen this in the last few weeks? This has been very challenging for me. And one of the like tiniest and clearest examples was two weeks ago, I was on the treadmill at the Y. Okay, you guys know the treadmills at the YMCA, Margaret Maddox, right? I'm on the treadmill, and my family is supposed to go to dinner with some friends. And I thought that my wife told me I needed to be home by 5.15. But then I thought, I wonder if that's true. So I texted her and she said, no, we need to be at their house at 5.15. Right. Okay, well, I had some very specific goals about what I was there to accomplish that day. And I had this moment of thinking, I can get off the treadmill now and get home and we will only be a few minutes late. 
or I can pretend I did not get the text and I can see my workout through and get and accomplish my goals, right, that I came here to get for crying out loud. And you know what? It was a simple miscommunication. It's not that big of a deal. We'll just be like 15 minutes late instead of five minutes late. The moment, okay, it sounds small, but that moment of temptation in my life felt so real. And I, guys, I got off the treadmill. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I'm glad you're appreciating how hard it was in the moment, right? Oh, and I'm almost, it was embarrassing and like humbling for me to realize how much of a battle that was to choose to like fight for the flourishing of my family and our evening over against my own goals. Oh, but friends, you've been freed for that in ways that are maybe feel small and in their smallness are actually really big for you. You've been freed for that. You have been freed from having to get God to prove himself to you. In the midst of some really challenging suffering in your life, when you ask God why, when you're saying to God, you've got to show up, you've got to tell me why, you've got to meet my questions with answers. God, if you are real, do this for me. Do you realize you are free from that? That you've been given power by the Holy Spirit to rest in the fact that Jesus is with you even when he does not give you the answers. And friends, we've got to acknowledge that the church sometimes has promised you things that Jesus did not promise you. There are times that as the church we have said, no, 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 we will turn all of your stones to bread. Just come on Sundays, I promise. But we've said, hey, just come here on Sundays. We'll have, we have every answer to every question. Just ask us, right? If you get coffee with me, I can tell you. We've said, oh, you want glory in your life? You want to be worshiped and praised? Come on. Come be a pastor, right? You can get it. And guys, so often the church has lied to us because if Jesus was willing to wait and say no to those things, then we as the church should not be promising them that what he has given us instead of answers to all of our questions, instead of stoning, turning all of our stones to bread, instead of giving us, wow, all of the glory that we want in the moment, what he has given us is himself. He's given us himself. And here's where we're going to talk about the substitute of the son because he has given us himself even when we continue to walk in sin. Because, friends, it's going to happen. Yes, you have been given the power of self-control. Yes, you are now free to choose to suffer, but we're, we don't always choose it. I don't always get off the treadmill. Sometimes I ignore the text, okay? And you do too. So what then? So we've been empowered now to live, which can actually make our failure feel all the much greater. You're telling me I have freedom, but now I think of all the times I haven't exercised that freedom. Now, now we can begin to feel even worse. We can kind of go two directions with that. Like, oh, okay, I guess I got to like buckle down and try like really, really hard. Like now I got to try really hard, right? And when I mess up, that's what we call it, when I mess up. Another word for that would be sin, okay? When I sin, the way I'm going to get better is I'm going to make myself feel worse. And I'm going to beat myself up with all kinds of shame and guilt so I can motivate myself to now act in the freedom that I have been given. And what happens is after we do that enough, what you're finally going to say is, I'm over it. Of course. And you may say, I'm over it, and like do it in this room in a nice, kind, polite, Christian way, I'm over it. Or you may do it with 
a finger to the air and say, I'm leaving and I'm done because I'm not interested in that kind of living. And friends, you shouldn't be because that's not the gospel. That is not how Jesus is asking you to live or to respond to the freedom that he has given you because this, this is what he did, guys. His suffering did not end at the temptation. It ended at the cross. In his total humiliation at the cross and it ended when God's wrath was poured out on him for our sins. And you know what? I'm going to read you what people were saying as they were walking by Jesus on the cross. This is out of Matthew 27. Same book, same biography. And those who passed by him derided him, wagging their heads, saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. It's those same words of Satan, the same temptation of Satan. If you are the son of God, then why has God turned his back on you? Just bring yourself down. And Jesus didn't bring himself down. He stayed. And by staying, it means that Jesus drank every drop from the cup of God's wrath that you deserve for your sin, that I deserve for my sin. He took all of it. All of it. And now, what is true about you is that God the Father looks at you, and if you were in Christ, he says, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You are my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. And there is nothing you can do to make that untrue. Nothing. Yeah, but, but what about, but, 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 no buts. Nothing you can do. And every time you try to yeah, but God to the fact that he's forgiven you, you are asserting your own autonomy over God's authority because God in his authority has made provision for your sin. And not just the sins that you have already committed, but guys, all the sins that you will commit. When Jesus died on the cross, how many of your sins were future sins to him? Say it again, how many of them? All of them. So you and I get all hung up on the fact like, well, I said I wasn't going to do it again, and then I went and did it again. Guys, Jesus knew that. He already paid for it. He already paid for it. You are his beloved son in whom he is well pleased. You are his beloved daughter in whom he is well pleased. I want you to imagine that you, let's say you have a mortgage. Maybe you can relate to that, okay? And someone has come and has paid your mortgage. Yeah, as he said, yes, that would be amazing, right? Think of all the freedom you would have in your life if your mortgage was paid. Yes! Okay, and then you start to like feel really bad about yourself for some reason, like you sin, and all of a sudden the way that you want to respond to that is to start paying your mortgage again. There's no mortgage to pay. Guys, God is not the one cashing the check of your guilt or your shame. It's Satan. The one who is trying to stir you up to assert your own autonomy over and against God's authority. He's great at, at, at spamming you and the phishing emails and texts, right? Right when you think you are free and suddenly, oh, you sin again, he's the one who's right on your case texting you, hey, did you remember to pay your mortgage? I think it's late. And we think we are doing a service by God by sending in the check to Satan. That is doing God nor you any favors. You are a beloved son in whom God is well pleased. You are a beloved daughter in whom he is well pleased. It's true about you. And in our sin, man, in the moments that we sin and we realize it, rather than running away from God and hiding from God and proving to God all the things that we're going to do better, that is exactly the place that he is calling us close to him, that he's saying, I love you. I knew you would sin. That's why I paid for it. Don't run away from me. Come to me. 
with all of the shame and all of the guilt, come to me. Come to me and let me love you. Guys, Jesus is never going to side with your sin against you. He's never going to side with Satan against you. When you come to him, he will always side with you against your sin. He will always side with you against Satan because he has already declared he is pleased with you. That all that is left is his love for you. And so the invitation is that we would begin to exercise the power of the Holy Spirit to believe that. Because it takes Holy Spirit power to believe that, doesn't it? That on our own, our wills are so weak, they are unable to believe how much God loves us. And the empowering work of the Holy Spirit is to come in and not only help you resist the sins that are easy for us to catalog a name, but to resist the sin of believing that we've got to do something to earn favor with God. The Holy Spirit has been given to you to resist that sin. Come on, let's make use of it, huh? To support each other in that. That's accountability. Guys, accountability is not you calling up your group of dudes to tell them that you looked at porn again and then saying, saying, hey, don't do that. That's not accountability. Accountability is us reminding each other how loved we are in Jesus. It's reminding each other that we are forgiven and reminding each other what it looks like for us to live as a people who are forgiven to come and rejoice in that grace. And we're going to sing about it in just a second, but I, I got to say uh, that if you're here and you don't know Jesus, you're exploring this whole Jesus thing, man, the way that that whole process starts of, of being loved by God is to respond uh, in belief to who Jesus says that he is. And the way we often talk about conversion experiences is like, well, I finally got to the point where I decided I like, gave my intellectual assent and I have given God permission to exist and to save me. And that's true to an extent, right? That there's got to be a place that we get where we say yes to God, yes. And yet when we do that, we're not giving God permission that he didn't already have. What we are doing is acknowledging the reality of who God is and who we are, and we're asking him to come save us. And so the invitation, whether it is this morning or whether it is over the next weeks or months or years of your life, is that you would come and that you would receive and live in the reality that Christ has won for us through not only his victory over temptation, but through his victory over sin and over death at the cross. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for the victories that you have won for us over temptation, Lord, over sin, and also over death. And pray that as we worship, that you would make our hearts come alive with the joy of that reality. We pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.